0: At each point in the journey, it was just about kind of like what's interesting and kind of fun to go and do. You know, I've had conversations with friends who started businesses because they really want to be an entrepreneur. You know, making money was at least half of the goal. And they did things that seemed like good business ideas, but they had no no interest in doing it and um, really struggled during the hard bits because of that. For me, it was always about
1: just sort of, you know, having fun, exploring and seeing what you could do. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Surter, and we're here to learn from top-notch founders. So I was really excited about talking with today's guest, Kieran O'Neill. I've known him for several years, and we got famously on In the Nevada Desert at Burning Man, so I was curious to find out what makes him tick. Kieran's the co-founder and CEO of Thread.com, a place where you can buy clothes online that suit and fit you, delivered by artificial intelligence, but also real human stylists. There's a lot of crazy things in Kieran's story, but getting sued by Disney as a teenager might just take the biscuit. He was a child prodigy, and we're going to dive into that later. But to understand Kieran, you need to know about his upbringing in sun-soaked Bermuda.
0: When you're born somewhere, it's just normal, right? You expect to sort of go to school and go to the beach afterwards and... For the beach to be sort of golden pink and sun to shine every day but obviously like uh, now that i'm older i know that it's a bit strange um my parents are english they kind of um wanted adventure and so both moved to bermuda when they were quite young met each other and had a family there and it was like the idyllic challenges. we sort of you know go out on a boat on the weekends and it was just amazing sunsets every day and then you know ver- various things happened my dad got sick and Parents got tired of being there and everything else. They were there for a long time. We moved back to the UK and and kind of grew up um, from a teenager here. And the contrast was very, very surreal because came in the middle of winter from, you know, a sunny place where we're wearing shorts to uh, a really cold, damp England. Um, Didn't know anyone. Came in sort of in the middle of the year. uh, Was doing kind of a a syllabus that was completely different than anything I studied before. And so, like, I'd done none of the maths required for GCSE by that point, point. Um, and so just a very uh, intense kind of way to come to the UK. But ultimately, actually, it's been been a great a great move, and I'm glad we did it in the end.
1: Yeah, we don't really teach our times table in uh, coconuts, but I can imagine there were some some differences.
0: Exactly. Yeah, the, the things you need to do well on a tropical island are maybe a bit different than the UK.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, how many layers of sun cream does one need to put on that pale skin? That kind of thing, right? I mean, with with my skin, it's like, it's maybe sort of four layers. Yeah, four layers of
0: factor 50. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you sort of, as a kid growing up, you sort of have things that you hate doing, you know, sort of it's like going to bed or like whatever, doing your homework. For me, it was putting on sunscreen. My mum had to force me every day to do it. Um, But, you know, eventually you sort of learn.
1: Okay, so it's really interesting. You've come to basically a completely different culture in your teenage years. And it's obviously where where you've settled and stayed. Uh, Were you able to make friends? What were you like as a teenager? And like, really, how did you behave in your latter years of of school?
0: Yeah, I was um, a weird mixture of a geek and quite sporty. And so like, when I was in in Bermuda, I was both sort of like, you know, one, one day playing American football at lunch and then the next day kind of going to the computer lab to kind of build mods for computer games. So kind of a really weird combination of those two, you know, it was like the house captain, but also just into programming. And then when I came to the UK, they had me shadow somebody. And the person I had to shadow was, you know, a lovely guy, but was, was not very sociable, was sort of a bit, a bit of the outcast and really in the whole year. And so I kind of got put into like, into his like social, <laughs> social group, um, which was basically just me and him uh and had to really kind of like figure that out and find myself and it was a a long journey to kind of find find my people at that point but you know got there eventually
1: okay and um i think you know from doing my research you have one of the more i think the word the word that people use is progenus uh it had one of those sort of wunderkind type uh existences as a young man and obviously uh, on the surface, it would look like your career has only been downhill and plateaued ever since, but started off pretty well, right? So talk to us about a young Kieran O'Neill.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I was always interested in computers. My dad was a, was a programmer, and, you know, one of the best best things growing up was that there were always computers lying around, sort of half-built. Um, you know, we had the internet from very young. And, um, you know, when I was maybe 12, Napster was was like a new hot thing. Uh, and so I kind of discovered it kind of first at school and ended up basically creating very illegally pirate sort of mixtape CDs, selling them at school. Um, made a bunch of money from that and kind of like, which fueled my interest further in, in kind of the Internet. Ended up wanting to create different animations, just kind of wanting to kind of, you know, kind of animate things. And so I taught myself ActionScript, which is kind of the flash programming language uh, when I think I was sort of 13, 14. And made these sort of weird and wonderful animations. The stuff that you, you do is like a sort of young teenager. One of them was like this, this lemon having a r- religious experience um, and becoming holy, just kind of made no sense, but as a kid, it's kind of funny. And I wanted a way of showing it to friends and you couldn't just email the files around. Uh, and so I ended up creating a website called holylemon.com where I just sort of uploaded and, and sort of embedded the, the animations. You know, show it with friends, got very little traffic, discovered this thing called SEO, um, and got really into um, learning how to optimize the site, managed to get to rank pretty well for funny animations as a keywords, and got a few hundred you know, unique visitors a day from that. And then decided to branch out and add, added videos to the site. So ways to basically see funny videos that I'd found online. Um, and this is 2003, so about two years pre-YouTube launching. There was really not much online in the way of, in the way of videos. And the site, you know, began to kind of grow and I decided to sort of set my sights on, uh, funny videos as a keywords to optimize towards. And after maybe six months of, of grinding on that got to number one. And it really kind of took off from there. It grew from 500 uniques a day to about 30,000 uniques a day within two months of kind of getting that ranking around that time added a way to upload your own videos. So, um, you know, uh, unleashing the, the kind of creativity and weirdness of the internet onto the site. And it basically went bananas at that point. And people began uploading, you know, lots of inappropriate videos, um, but also sorts of funny ones as well um, that people would then just, you know, share as, as they do today. Uh, it grew to about 500,000 people a day visiting the site. And at this point, you know, I was sort of 15, studying for my GCSEs, Trying to figure out how to keep up with the hosting um, requirements, which were getting pretty intense at that time, and you know, I had to sort of self-teach server administration and sort of figure out how to do that. Managed to just about, you know, scale the number of servers in time with with the growth, but of course that in- increased the cost a lot, you know. And I was making maybe like a few hundred bucks a month, and the bill then suddenly shot up to two thousand a month, and you know, I had thirty days to pay it. But I definitely couldn't pay it and my parents didn't know Uh, and so I didn't want to go to them and ask for you know sort of two thousand dollars in you know cash Um, and so really had to scramble and figure out how do you make money from this site that is is like mostly funny videos but occasionally like you know an inappropriate video slipped through and just it was just like not an obvious um, thing to monetize managed to get the cost down to about like 1000 a month at the time but obviously that continue to climb and then through various ad networks was able to create a script that would give each of the various ad networks some traffic each morning and then whichever one was paying the highest CPM give the rest of the day's inventory to that network. Um, And so, you know, a way of of like optimizing the, the kind of CPM across different ad networks and that was really effective, and it it sort of pushed revenue from you know three hundred bucks a month to five or ten thousand dollars a month, and you know suddenly I was like this sort of kid making like five five k a
1: month. That's insane, isn't it? Because actually, we hear these stories a lot in, in Web three now, right? We hear about this uh, you know these kids over in the Philippines or the seventeen year old that creates this NFT collection and all that stuff. But actually, you know, you forget then the what we call Web two now. Uh, the early internet days, there were lots of people like you from all over the internet dabbling and playing with stuff. The difference between what I hear from you, though, just even reflecting on this one story, and someone like me, for example, is sort of the early signs of a systems thinker. So if I was in that situation, I started a bunch of businesses when I was about 15 and stuff as well, but most of them sort of failed through, I don't know, laziness, not thinking through the problems properly, like the kind of things actually that you learn in your career on the journey of entrepreneurship step by step. I'm quite impressed, I have to say, hearing you immediately say I got the bills down to $1,000 roughly. You know, it's an interesting 15-year-old to think, you know, not about like, okay, how do I cover $2,000? How do I make 10 and cover that? But the first thing to think about, how do I bring the bills down? Sounds very logical, of course, but it's, uh, it's an interesting insight. Do you think that's quite an, um, a character-defining uh, insight around you?
0: Well, I think it was sheer terror at the time. I mean, it was, it was like staring down this impending bill, which was growing every day with, without really a plan to fix it. So a lot of it was like you know it was was like the stick rather than the carrot. But um, I've always been someone who likes to kind of think in systems and tries to kind of optimize my life and be very clear about what I want to get out of it and and how I kind of you know invest my time and energy into that. I'd say it was much less developed um, as an approach when I was fifteen, but certainly the kind of the, the basics were there. You know, during the summer holidays were obviously a big, a big moment for running a a business as a teenager because suddenly you go from having, you know, two hours a day to having all the time in the world to to work on these things. I remember creating these, um, these very kind of structured day plans, you know, when I was 16 for the summer holidays, um, where I would put in like three hours on on the business and then like an hour to play video games and then two hours in the business uh, and then go see friends, whatever, which with hindsight actually
1: sounds a bit strange. Is that instinctive? Is in, did you read that somewhere? Did you learn about it?
0: I think a bit of it was instinctive and a bit of it was learned. I mean, I, I definitely have been reading kind of business books from a young age. You know, I think I read Good to Great when I was 16 or 17.
1: Yeah, we've had Jim Collins on the podcast, actually. A proper legend. Yeah, yeah he's,
0: he's incredible. You know, most of it didn't make sense to me as a kid. You know, I read it again last year, actually, for the second time. And it just... The, the concepts fit so much better into, into lived experience at that point. But yeah, like, you know, I, I was listening to sort of Tony Robbins and, and all, all the sort of wonderful kind of stuff you can, you can find out there if you begin looking for it. And so, yeah, certainly a lot of it was learned and some of it was personality as well. So um, got a profitable uh, and kept, you know, growing it throughout GCSEs and A-levels. I then um, went to university and was trying to figure out whether I studied computer science or business, And thought that I would sort of self-taught programming at that point to want to learn business. And then had a really interesting experience, uh, interesting kind of being a sort of bit of a euphemism where during my first week of uni, so freshest week of university, I received a, this sort of thick package, which was actually a legal letter from Disney saying they were going to sue me for copyright infringement um, because there were seven videos on the website that they owned and they said if... If I'd gone to them and licensed them, I would have had to pay them a million dollars in fees, um, but because I'd used them without licensing them, that's, that is what I owed them, which just was very stressful. You know, as like a 17-year-old like at this point, 18-year-old, you know, like you've got no concept of how um, to navigate legal issues. You know, I um, had to go and find a, a very expensive lawyer, you know, through sort of like someone that my like wife's cousin knew. And they did some work on it. And they, they came back and said basically, like, we have no idea whether this is something to worry about or not. The online copyright kind of legislation that came in in the year 2000 was, was brand new and hadn't been tested yet. And so basically, being told that maybe you're going to get sued into oblivion and bankrupt you and your family, because I was 17, so my parents were reliable. Or actually, maybe it's totally fine. Um, and they just couldn't, couldn't tell me. And it's had a really stressful period over the next six months where I was trying to um, find a way to get them to, to not sue me. And eventually kind of, we got to a point where, where the lawyers were saying, because you've taken down the videos as soon as you were asked to, you probably are fine. So I went back with that to Disney and said, look, I've attached to you a kind of legal opinion from my law firm saying, they think I haven't done anything wrong. But if you pursue this anyway and, you know, are just sort of trying to like destroy a kid's life, I'll have to go to the press about how this family values company is, you know, for no reason destroying this, this kid's life. They, after that, um, began talking about settling it rather than taking it to trial. And then, yeah, eventually we settled out of court. And so I had to pay $100,000 in cash, which was every last penny that I'd saved up from the business. You know, and, and it went from this exciting high growth business to being basically a blank check for someone to come along the next day and, and sue me again. And so I was thinking about closing it down. You know, I couldn't afford that to happen again. It had been, you know, a super stressful experience trying to like navigate, dealing with that bankrupting my family, you know, whilst also living away from home for the first time and everything else it was just very difficult. And so I didn't want to like, you know, <laughs> run a business where like that could just, Happen again tomorrow um, with like another video. And so I was thinking about closing it down. Around that time, I received an email from a guy called Carl Page, who is Larry Page's brother, so the Google founder's brother. Uh, And Carl is a billionaire. He was one of the first Google investors. He founded a business and taken it public and was interested in in buying my
1: site. Imagine being a billionaire, but being... Larry Page's brother.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Imagine
1: all of the accomplishments you've actually done in your life, like early investor at Google whatever, but you'll always just be the brother. Exactly. Your parents are like, we've done well, Carl, but like, you know, Larry's done it even better. Mm, Carl, it's adorable that you're just a billionaire.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, only, only one, one billion? <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah, he, he was interested in buying it. And obviously I was interested in selling it. And so began this really interesting experience where, um, he offered. I walked him through the legal context. Had obviously I had to sort of make sure he knew that, and he was still interested in buying it. He offered one million US USD to, to acquire the site. I uh, was a lot more interested in that than than being sued again. Um, and so, kind of, we began you know began the process of negotiating that. Frustratingly, this was during my first year of university exams, so I was having to basically finish an exam in the UK fly out to San Francisco, negotiate, you know, with him and also like his exec team of like, you know, four or five people all in their fifties. I was 18 at this point, but then stop, you know, like a week in fly back to the UK to take like a marketing one-on-one exam. Cause I didn't want to, you know, have the deal fall through not take my exams have to retake first year. That would just be horrendous. Um, anyway. And so, yeah, began this very slow process of going basically back and forth for four or five weeks did about um you know one flight back and forth to the us each week for those sort of five weeks but then yeah and um agreed to to sell the business um for one quarter million dollars when i was 19 and yeah passed my exams so so that was sort of uh, a very very surreal experience could never have planned it but um yeah it came with a huge amount
1: of relief once we once we signed the deal It's quite amazing because technically you're a millionaire at the age of 18. How does that, and what university did you go to out of interest? I went to Bath. Yeah, so how did that position you amongst your your friends?
0: For the friends who I was really close with, they were, you know, insiders to the whole process. They knew that I was I was running the business already. They knew that I was being sued, that I kind of received this acquisition offer. But that was like my housemates, basically, like a few people. And then... The rest of my kind of year group, most of them knew that I was running a business. Some of them, probably most of them, knew that I was maybe selling it, but I didn't know them that well, and they hadn't sort of been privy to the kind of the um, you know the ups and the downs and the stresses of it all. And so when when I sold it, actually the uh, the university reached out to me and said, "Hey, would you mind if we put out a press release about you selling your business?" And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, And so there was a BBC news article about about it. And if you go and Google, I can sort of find it from two thousand seven. It's sort of it's hilarious to go back and read it now. Actually, it's a weird picture of me sort of like holding up a laptop with a website on it in the school library. It actually got a bit weird for a little bit. People sort of you know some just were like curious and open and you know relaxed about it. Asked questions about it. A bunch of people, like, were quite awkward about it and would make jokes about, like, oh, I guess you're buying the drinks, but in a way that sort of, like, had an awkward, weird edge to it. And then some people just sort of spoke to me less afterwards as well. So, yeah, a, a weird mixture of reactions. And um, thankfully, kind of the people that, you know, you sort of were closest to were, were very sort of relaxed and joking about it and full of bats. What did you learn from the journey? I mean really the whole thing happens not because I set out to like create a video sharing business, but because I was just curious and wanted to explore. And I think, you know, the, I just think a lot about the, um, you know, that kind of famous Steve Jobs inauguration um, speech where he said, you can only connect the dots with hindsight. You can't, you know, kind of plan them out going forward. And that was a hundred percent what happens. Like, I, you know, I was just, interested in making animations and then learned to program and then just sort of build a website and learn to do SEO. And each point in the journey, it was just about kind of like what's interesting and kind of fun to go and do. And, you know, I've had conversations with friends who started businesses because they really want to be an entrepreneur, you know, wanted to, you know, making money was at least half of the goal. And they did things that, that seemed like good business ideas. But they had no in, no interest in doing it, and um, really struggled during the hard bits because of that. And for me, it was always about just sort of you know having fun, exploring, and seeing what you could do. And so, trying to basically sort of bring that mindset into future businesses was was a very deliberate thing I did. Um, hard to do because you know once once you sort of had some experience, you really do think about like how big could this be, and like you know you know will this work, as well as like would I actually enjoy it, and how much does it suit
1: me. Okay, so you've learned some lessons about yourself. Presumably you finished university. I am being presumptuous, but you seem the type. I did not actually know. You did not, right. Well, let's break let's break down the uh, the bias then. So not not the Kieran O'Neill that I I thought. Do you think that's me now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, university education is just so unbelievably important. Now go on t- talk to us what happened next. Well, so, I mean, at that
0: point, like, you know, I discovered what I, I want to do for the rest of my life is just sort you of, know, you know, build things. And I began building a, a tool, basically, that would track which of my housemates was best at a particular game. And it would email each other when someone, you know, overtook each other's high scores and ultimately it would become a sort of a social, social network for gamers. And you did that with with a friend of mine from school. And as we sort of began kind of building it out, the vision became bigger and bigger. And you know, it really was create a social platform across any games console. And I was a big gamer, and, and so was my friend. And you know, as we began expanding that in terms of what the vision would become, it became clear to me that this this could be sort of like my next sort of main thing. Decided to try and raise some funding for it. And went out and met all of the kind of various um, angel investors, you know, ended up meeting um, Michael Birch, the founder of Bebo and Michael Acton-Smith from Calm and other businesses and just a bunch of other great kind of founders and ended up getting to the point where I had a term sheet on the table for a million dollars in seed funding to go and build this out as a proper sort of Web2 startup. And obviously the condition on of, of the million dollars was that I, I went full-time on it. And so it really wasn't that hard a decision. You know, I was really into this now. I was excited by it. Um, you know, it was a, a kind of problem that were really a tool, something fun that I was using with my friends already with day-to-day. And, and so, yeah, kind of dropped out of university, moved to London, didn't you know, know, didn't know a soul there, and ended up in this very strange kind of flat share with a bunch of Australians who um, I didn't really socialize with, and so it was just like in my bedroom, <laughs> you know, just the whole time. But yeah, then, um, you know, began building that business. You know, it's called PlayFire, and ended up, you know, evolving it over time to, to being the sort of fully featured gamer social network. Um, you know, managed to figure out how to track what you played in your Xbox, PlayStation, and PC automatically. You know, there were no APIs, and so I had to do some very complex stuff around sniffing packets between a PlayStation in our office and a user account to sort of decode the gaming data, which we could then use to power the kind of, the sort of um, profile system and, you know, recommendation system for which games to play next. Managed to grow it using viral loops. You know, we weren't really monetizing the traffic. There was no lifetime value. And so had to grow in, in a way that was for free and ended up trying out a bunch of different ways to kind of get people to invite their friends Um, When they joined and created a way of inviting your Xbox Live friends, they then came in, invited their friends and had this surreal moment of, you know, over maybe like a six week period, we had about a million members to the service. It's just crazy kind of like, um, you know, what you imagine a startup to be like, where it just grows, you know, faster than you can kind of hang on to it. And then around that time, we had a few of our partners approaches about buying the business. We decided to sell and ended up selling that company yeah, about sort of five years into the, that journey.
1: And how much did you sell it for? Who did you sell it to? What was your experience that time?
0: Yeah, so we had um, a couple of different options on the table. One was a cash deal from a public um, games company. The other was an all stock deal from a kind of fast growing, like scale up. We decided to go for the kind of higher risk, higher reward option of an all stock sale with a with scale up. And so, um, yeah, so the, you know, they're, they're still private, great um, quickly. It's a business called Green Man Gaming. TBD on, on the outcome for that.
1: What do you do next? I mean, you, like you talk about, you know, you sold your company to Green Man Gaming. Did you have to work in there for a while? Did you have an exit strategy personally? Like how long between that and starting Thread?
0: There was like a three hour gap between the two. The deal that Paul and I agreed was that he was interested in buying the products and the tech. And, uh, and so I didn't have to stay and, you know, work throughout the um, sort of post-acquisition period. And I had been talking to my co-founder, Ben, who um, uh, is a really talented software engineer, kind of ex-Google. Um, you know, we built Playfire together with uh, another friend and had this moment sort of as we were selling Playfire where we were like, OK, so the rest of our lives, <laughs> what do we want to do? And went out for a beer and, you became actually really clear that we wanted to work together again. Um, we had a great kind of, you know, uh, working relationship and he's super talented. And, um, you know, he asked, what would I want to work on? You know, you know, I could do anything at this point. What would we want to do? And I am, um, I have like a lot of ideas. I keep a a, a sort of text file with, with various ideas in there. And at this point I had about 10 that was on like kind of a sort of a, maybe not a short list, but like a medium short list but nine of them were for other people, problems that they had, problems that I didn't have personally. And one was a problem I had myself, which was that I wanted to dress well and have good clothes, but found shopping to be really frustrating. You know, I would go to sort of offline stores and it would like take a whole afternoon and I would just like, be busy and crowded and would have to come back with like, something that I'd already basically owned in my wardrobe, another gray sweatshirt um, or nothing at all. And then online, I just felt sort of overwhelmed by the choice. There's like a million different things to look at, which things were going to suit me and fit me. And kind of the issue ultimately was that I kind of wanted to try some new stuff, but wasn't quite sure what. And so I knew that Ben had the same problem. We'd sort of talked about it in the past. And, um, you know, when I shared that idea with him, we just began riffing on it. And, you know, had thoughts about how you could combine real stylists with machine learning to create this kind of amazing experience for people. And so at the time, we said, okay, well, that, this is really interesting. This is like our top idea, but, you know, we should still take a break and go traveling and, you know, you know have, a, have a recharge period between Playfire and, and what's next. But in the meantime, let's just begin doing some, you know, customer discovery, begin exploring the idea. And so two days later, and this is all like in parallel to doing the kind of legal process of selling, selling Playfire, so overlapping it. Two days later, we went to Covent Garden. And we're standing around on the street with clipboards, stopping strangers in the street, asking them about their style and how they dressed and see if you know what problems they had. You know, we filled out a questionnaire about each person and then gave that to a stylist, uh, a freelance stylist, who we just sort of roped into helping us out. And she would um, basically just email those people with advice and recommendations for what to wear, which were just links off to other sites and people loved it they began really engaging um you know we had like a 92 percent email open rates they began buying off clothes asking if their friends could join and get the same thing and you know at that point it was really clear that there was something here you know totally unscalable the way we were doing it making the money but there was a kernel of something really really powerful i was talking to a friend of mine who was a partner at Y Combinator Um, the kind of Silicon Valley um, accelerator. And he had recently become a partner there and said, you know, look, this I think is super interesting for YC. It's, you know, big vision, you know, reinventing how, how clothing and retail can work. You know, you should come and join the next YC batch. Um, And I was like, you know, super interested in that. I've heard amazing things about it. When does it start? And he was like, well, we have actually finished applications and the new batch starts this weekend. I was like, okay, and so went to my um, then girlfriend, our wife, was like, so how would you feel if I moved out to America for like six or twelve months? And she was like, uh, I don't know, like sure, I'm sure we can make it work. I'd, I'd love this space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, she's like, when are you thinking? I said Sunday, <laughs> and um, you know, it was a, a hilarious conversation, but but ultimately she was supportive and yeah, and so. Um, we flew out, you know, the next day to interview with YC. Had this super intense interview process. Usually, YC interviews last ten minutes, but because there was no one else being interviewed that day, you know, we had Paul Graham and, uh, and one of the one of the guys. And they just kept asking questions, so it was like this intense grilling from Paul Graham that lasted an hour, when normally they last ten minutes. And um, so, kind of finished exhausted, was like in this. And I could stay at the airport when got a call from Jessica um, Livingstone um, saying, "You know, we'd love to have you come and join." Flew back to the UK, packed up, and then
1: two days later, moved moved back out to SF. Jump to um, jump to the end of the story for a moment. Like, give us a snapshot of what Thread is. Like, how big is Thread? Where are you at today? What are your current ambitions and goals?
0: So, Thread um, really, we kind of set out to go for that vision that we had at the beginning, which is. We wanted to make it easy to dress well by recommending the perfect clothes uh, for you based on your appearance and body shape and style.
1: And, and just looking at you today, you don't use the service. I,
0: I've never tried no, it before no, yeah, in my life. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, never tried it before. And you know, it's that combination of human stylists to bring taste and creativity with AI machine learning to give each person a very different experience. And so. We're at the point now we have you know, a few million members on the service. It's live in the UK and the US. We began focusing on men because you know, the, the founders were, were guys, but now we're doing women's wear and that's growing like crazy. And ultimately, I think you know, we're at a point where as consumers, we expect there to be a button on our phone that like you know solves a big part of you know, our life for us. We've got Monza for banking and Spotify for music. And clothing and style, I think, should be no different. You know, we should press a button and see great new things to wear that are right for you based on how you look and what you like, you know, your lifestyle, where everything is instantly viable, where the store is completely personalized to you. It's all in your size, you know, and all in your budgets, et cetera. And it learns continuously. And so we, we sort of track what you're doing in the app every sort of one second or so and, and feed that back into the AI in real time so that it, it learns and gets better and better and better based on how you use it. You know, it's um, something that I've really enjoyed building, kind of building a, a machine learning kind of product has all sorts of interesting kind of challenges, but huge opportunities if you get it right. And we've you know, really focused on that customer experience and the technology and, and making that amazing. And the business at the point now, we've got about 60 employees in London. Business growing very quickly and yeah, having a lot of fun. And what are the big plans for this year? Really, the big thing for us is um, is women's wear. And so up until last year, we hadn't done it. It was always something we wanted to do. We got hundreds of support tickets a month from, from customers saying, you know, like when's when's women's are coming? And uh, we decided to do it last last year, and it's just grown like a like a rocket. Um, we sort of put it out there and very quickly found product market fit you get really like a, a feed of inspiration, kind of like Pinterest, but then everything is instantly buyable and kind of right for you in your own sort of personalized store. And that's just really resonated well with that market. And so the kind of first step of the plan is to keep making it better and better and better, making the AI better or making new ways to discover and, and find things that are right for you. Building out the range, you know, it's a, it's a marketplace where we aggregate about a thousand brands Um, So at this point, it's got a bigger range than ASOS and Mr. Porter and Next combined. Um, So huge, huge range, but then obviously the AI then personalizes it down to you. Um, So yeah, kind of building out the the kind of customer experience, building out the range, and then growing internationally as well. We launched in the US a couple of years ago, Um, that's growing very quickly and we'll be continuing that out as
1: well. Amazing. Any notable customers that you're allowed to uh, publicize? Um, I don't know what we're allowed to say. We've got a bunch of celebrities
0: using it. Um, I was in a meeting with, um, with Rio Ferdinand and he just used it a bunch and like, um, talking about whether you could invest in the business and get free clothes and whatever. (laughs) We're a bunch of people who, um, have been in touch that there are sort of people who have been in touch, but uh, I don't know why I can share or not share.
1: Okay, and um, talk to me about fundraising then. So, how much have you raised? What's your journey been? What are your ambitions? Are you doing another round? Are you looking to sell at some point? Like, what do you? How do you think about this stuff?
0: We've taken a quite interesting approach to fundraising, where it's been fairly um, sort of high resolution, which is kind of like the Valley term for you sort of do it ongoing as you need it, rather than sort of waiting and doing these like very sort of traditionally structured rounds, you know. And so, kind of first money in for us was Y Combinator. And we, we then took angel money from just founders who I think are amazing and wh- I wanted their advice. And so sort of Errol Damlin, the founder of Wonga, um, Ian Hogarth, the Sonku founder, just kind of brilliant people like that. Uh, and then we've raised a sort of series A um, from Balderton and Berenjea. We were talking to H&M about being a brand on the platform and powering some private label brands we wanted to create and they ended up investing in the business. And then yeah, and then I've been very lucky with with other sort of entrepreneurs and angels. So, um, with Staffer Solomon um, and Demis Hassabis from Deep Mind's are investors in the business. Uh, a bunch of the entrepreneurs who invested in my last company invested again as well. And so we've raised about um, forty million dollars. And then yeah, and the plan kind of from here is we'll raise a you know our next round this year at some points, and kind of really focus on kind of building and scaling and you know building out the vision of. Thread really becoming, you know, I think in many ways, a model for the future of the industry. Because I think long term, you know, I think a generic, unpersonalized multi-brand retailer just won't make sense anymore. You know, everyone will have these experiences that are completely personalized to them. You know, why would you go and browse a site that has 10,000 things that are not right for you? When you can go to one that has a selection where everything is perfect for you with sort of built-in inspiration. Um, And so kind of building out that vision is, is very much the plan.
1: Yeah, super exciting. And obviously, like a lot of things you say, you know, it sounds purely logical. So let's talk about that then. Um, As quite a logical communicator and logical thinker, how do you drive inspiration in your business? Because I would say one of the challenges sometimes with being pure common sense is it can be quite hard to drum up passion and excitement. So how do you build culture and how do you get that kind of energy at Thread?
0: Yeah. So I think for me, I definitely like systems thinking, but I also love products and design and creativity as well. And so for me, sort of a pretty important combination of the two, I tend to often be the one who, who will be sort of pushing the team to think bigger and, and more ambitious in the plans. Um, but then also kind of pushing to be Clearer and more structured in the steps to get there. I can do finance, I I I can do um, analysis, those sorts of things. But um, actually, it's more in like kind of the the kind of product vision meets exactly how we get there is kind of the thing that I kind of spend most of my time thinking about. You know, when it comes to to culture, it was pretty interesting actually. Kind of starting my third business, and actually the second company with the same with the same person. Because at that point, the sort of the shine of doing a company at all is completely one off. You know, you you know the pain that's coming for you, and so you have to really question yourself and, and why you're doing it and your motivations at a level that you just don't really consider when it's your first thing. And so, you know, when Ben and I kind of decided to work together again on a new business, I think it was like our second second day of of kind of working on it. We had a half a day kind of meeting, which sort of began in the afternoon and ended up becoming kind of uh, a few drinks got involved. And it was really kind of like, okay, so we think this is a cool business idea. We have this problem ourselves. We think it's really fun to build this machine learning kind of combination with stylist experience, but like, why are we doing it? And we kind of sat down and really, really realized that part of it was that we had made a whole bunch of mistakes, you know, with the previous business, You know, we had a good culture, but it was very accidental. It was not deliberate at all. And there were things about it that we we would do differently. And so with Threads, we kind of sat down and really created this, um, I think it was like a six-page Google Doc with like, you know, 100 bullet points on it, which was like, this is what we want the culture to be like and stand for. And we're very specific about it. And as part of that, it became really clear to us that like trying to create a culture and company that achieved this idea of excellence that we sort of formed through doing a previous business together was really kind of half the point. It was like, it was to build that customer experience and to, you know, sort of solve that problem for ourselves, but then also to build like what we saw as greatness in a company. And that's really kind of followed us through throughout the whole journey. You know, we um, codified that six page document into our set of values at the very beginning of the, the company, and then have hired every single employee by grading them numerically against each of the values. When you're interviewing for Thread, you'll sort of do a first round, which is sort of very functional, and then a second round, which is all about culture and values. And you know, we're looking to find people who strengthen us, who bring something new to at least one of the values and who we think are gonna you know, sort of increase the average across that. You know, the time that we all spend at work is such a huge percentage of our life, right? it's gonna shape us um, in very significant ways. And so I think, you know, being able to create an environment that shapes you in a way that you want versus one that happens to just shape you in the way that it happens to be is a really important part of designing your life so that it sort of goes the way you want it. You know, I think that maybe like 70% or so of the culture you have is, is the people, 30% is the environments and um, the behavior that's role modeled and the incentive systems and everything else. And so, you know, the vast majority is set before you've even, like, done a presentation or, you know, told anyone what, what the values are. And, you know, I, I kind of don't envy CEOs who come into companies and have to try and change cultures, because you've got to basically change so many people to get to that that place you're trying to get to that it's impractical. You know, the, the thing is that, like, companies that try and be everything end up being nothing, right? And so w- with your company and your culture, you have to basically take a stand, have an opinion, say no to lots of good things that you could be so that you have a chance of being the, the things that you really, really must be. What that means also is that is that you have to basically say no to people who don't kind of share those values, right? There's no way you're going to be aligned. And in some ways, like it's not really talked about enough that actually there's a tension between building a coherent culture and inclusivity. Because if you, if you want to be an environment that any type of person with any values can work at, you're not going to be a very value-driven company. Um, and, so you, and so kind of making these decisions upfront, early when you have the chance to change it, I think is so valuable. And then if you're kind of, you know, someone who has a business already with employees and want your kind of culture to be clearer, I think you can change it. It just needs to be a very high priority. Every new hire has to be aligned to it. Everyone who isn't aligned to it, needs to eventually move on to a place that they're more aligned to. Um, And that's painful and requires real kind of commitment to achieve.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point you made about inclusivity. And I suppose, you know, it's a buzzword, right? Like diversity. And people want all of this stuff, of course, but again, you can't have it all. You can't have all the things that society tells you you should have and also have that meaningful culture. Some cultures are just not right for people, and you should get a sense of that quite quickly. Actually, whether you're IRL or you're remote, you should get a sense of whether this place is for you or is not for you. So, what are some weird things that you do then? Because actually, you know, um, one of my favorite things I tell my team all the time when they're like, mm, "I don't know, this feels a bit, you know, culty." I'm like, "Good. The word culture comes from cult. The more this feels culty, I'm not saying like it's like we should all drink suicide." Uh, beverages, but you know, the more it sort of starts to feel like that, I have whiffs of that sometimes. It's like you're doing some things right. Actually, you're ritualizing some things that are uniquely you. So, what are the things that are uniquely thread?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, so one, once once you got the people, you're into that second thirty, into that last thirty percent, and it's like, how do you create something that is like a real influence over how everyone behaves? Because culture is just how everyone behaves, right? You know, for us, beyond the kind of the, um, the hiring process where we, you know, sort of assess against it, we, we've tried to, from day one, make culture a huge part of the experience. So we, um, we do values trainings for every new, every new starter. Myself, my co-founder and our sort of founding kind of engineer, uh, first employee, uh, Tom, will take a couple of values each and talk through what it means. You know, you can sort of understand what, what a certain value means, but actually how it's applied day to day is, is often quite different. And so talking through examples where we did it well in the past, times we've done it badly in the past, and making it interactive and sort of a group experience. We then also um, ongoing we, we do uh, a values retrospective every two weeks. We get the company together and we say, how well has you know candor gone as a value for us? And we basically talk openly about it. We create safe spaces, you know, psychological safety is really essential for having a good conversation about values. And um, we, we reflect on what's gone well, what's gone poorly. And then based on that, we create an experiment to change the culture. And the way I think about really Thread is that we're just a collection of our live running experiments, the things that happen to be running at this moment in time. And um, those experiments are things like, you know, changing the rhythm of the weekly meetings, or changing kind of the you know, new, new sort of employee onboarding, or um, you know, being a lot more open about how the exec team you know, shares what we're working on and those sorts of things. And um, yeah, so they're kind of the fortnightly values retrospectives. So much really comes through how, as leaders, we role model values. You know, we, we do through the feedback, as I think many companies do. We create development plans. But, you know, I, I share mine with the company. I do an sort of all-hand session where I kind of walk through the feedback I received. I don't hide the bad stuff. I, you know, I am just share very, very straightforwardly. And like my reflection on it, how I think about that, integrate that, and then like my plan to fix it. And um, we ask people to share one, one thing, you know, I share all of mine, we ask people to share one thing. And so I think through various rituals like that, it creates, you know, real tangibility to the values. You know, we've got seven, seven of them, they often have a weird names, so so uncomfortably fast is one of them, and relentless self-iteration is another one. And so they're kind of them being kind of weird names themselves helps them stick, but then actually it's the things you do to make them real is where the real kind of value comes from.
1: And what is, what is one area of your life that you just know that you're, well, I guess I'll ask a different way, like, have you ever had feedback? of a character trait or something that's sort of taken you aback where you're like, wow, I didn't really know that about myself. You know, like the Johari's window aspect of the unknown unknown, worse than a blind spot, like the deep things you just don't know about yourself. Have you had any of those sort of surprising moments and and thoughts about how you'd improve on those? I mean, I've had so much feedback over the years. And when you choose candor as a value and you hire for
0: it, and, (laughs) you know, you talk about it a lot, you, you get really, really direct feedback. And I've, I found that hugely valuable. And there's been certain employees I've had, people I've worked with, um, so like our old um, people director, Melissa, our old head of starting, Shawnee, people that sort of were hugely valuable in, in helping me understand myself and my limitations um, as a CEO and help me to sort of develop in those. So I mean, like one of them that stands out that was very consistent that um, I used to get a lot was I would expect people to get things done in the way that I do things and obviously everyone's different and I sort of know that intellectually but I I still would look at a problem a way of approaching that would come to me and if someone did it differently and and maybe it didn't work I would sort of think that oh it's because they didn't do it you know in this way which obviously is my way and what I've learned actually is that there are lots of different ways to, to do things successfully and everyone has their own strengths and their own styles. And my job as like a manager and leader is to be self-aware enough of, of that, of what my styles are and try and untangle that from, from the situation. And it's one of those things that like it maybe came up for two years before eventually like I managed to kind of like it, it really clicked and I internalized it and began doing that a bit more instinctually versus when I sort of would go, oh shit, yeah, I'm supposed to be, uh, <laughs> I'm supposed to be understanding kind of like how they do it and then adapt my style to that.
1: Great, thank you. Okay, last question. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? It's, all, it's almost like a two-parter and, you know, what is the best piece of advice you would offer listeners looking to follow in, uh, in an inspiring path of focus and structure?
0: The thing about advice is that it, it's it's a dangerous thing, right? Because often there's a great quote from Paul Buchheit, who is one of the um, partners of YC, which is um, advice is limited life experience times by overgeneralization. You know, it's, it's the idea that like people often have had an experience in an area and they sort of like assume that's how the world works and they give it to you. I mean, in like a better way, I had a conversation with him about that during YC. He said like one of the most valuable skills that you can learn as a founder is Is like knowing what advice to listen to and what and what to ignore, when to um, trust your gut and your instincts, and when actually like you're just being an idiot. And like this is obviously the way to do it. And the way he he framed it was, you want to almost ignore the conclusions that they reached in their situation, but listen carefully to how they were thinking about the problem. And there there in in every situation are, are are things you can learn that apply to your situation when it comes to what were the ways in which they evaluated the situation? How did they learn more about the options? How did they explore and trial the options or get quick feedback on them? Versus like you should always hire people with lots more experience than you need in the role or always hire people who are just like very talented, up on cameras, whatever it is. Like it's always just dance. The, the truth is always very contextual. So that's something that I've thought about a lot since then and applied that. And the advice that I would give people is as much as possible, just be very clear in your own minds what it is that you want to create, you know, with your company or with your sort of project or with your life. And be aware that the way that you set things up has a huge impact on that. So the people that you choose to work with, the way you even frame and think about the problem, um, you know, what the mission is, those things will cascade down into a thousand other decisions. And you know, when, when you do those things, be self-aware enough to to realize whether you're doing it for yourself or for this like image of who you want to be that comes from other people. You know, whenever you're striving to be someone because it's what everyone else wants to become, but actually like it may be not what you truly want to be or what makes you happy you're 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 squandering you know the chance you have a life and so kind of that like self-awareness and um deliberateness with how you design design things around you is i think what i'd I'd say
1: i love it that is arguably some of the best uh limited life experience multiplied by overgeneralization i've ever heard so yeah (laughs) (laughs) what a perfect way to leave it thank you so much kieran it's been a massive pleasure great thanks dan Next week on Secret Leaders. For Powder Mountain,
0: we negotiated to buy it for $40 million. But it turned out that we only needed to put uh, $16.5 million down as a down payment. The most interesting thing is that the most expensive thing isn't actually buying the mountain. The most expensive thing was actually building the roads and the infrastructure, the water, the sewer, the power pulling fiber optic internet up
1: that was elliot bisnow the co-founder of summit who put on legendary events which became the gold standard in tech conferences more recently he and a group of pals have bought a ski resort called powder mountain which they're turning into the best in north america it's pretty wild find out what he's up to next week on secret leaders Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media, with Will Stoleman, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.